Good morning. It is great to see you guys. It's great to see you guys here. It's great to see you guys online. And, and uh, last week we concluded, Pastor Philip concluded our series on Galatians. And so for the next couple of weeks before we start a new series, uh, we'll be doing a, a bunch of standalone or a couple of standalone messages or topical sermons. And so today's going to be a little different that, that while we're centering on one text, we're going to do what I like to call Bible gymnastics. We're going to flip through the word. And so before we get started, why don't you just pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are good, and your mercy endures forever. And so right, right now, as we're in this preaching moment, God, the word is about to be proclaimed. Move me out the way, Lord, that you will speak. Lord, that our hearts are prepared to receive what you want communicated today and that you will get the glory out of it. So right now, Lord, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh, Lord, our strength and our redeemer, the one who we place our trust. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I want you to go with me to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, while this is not the main passage for today, the anchor text, it does help set the scene as to what we're going to talk about today. And in Luke chapter 22, verses 41 through 45, just a couple of small verses, the text says that he withdrew, being Jesus, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray. Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. So what did Jesus pray for? What could possibly be so heavy on his heart that he would pray with a fervency that even feels like sweat, drops of of blood would would floor down through his pores. What could be so important? We know that Jesus is about to be tried and crucified, and, and we know that he's about to get arrested, but what does he pray for? And so John in chapter 17 records Jesus' prayer, and it's part of that prayer that we find our anchor text and our anchor point for today's message. And so if you see at the beginning of John 17, the time of him being glorified is coming, that he wants to uh, see that God is glorified in this. Then he prays for his disciples. But starting at verse 20 and ending in verse 26, Jesus prays for all believers. And he says this, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be completely one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with with me where I am so that they will see my glory which you have given me because you have loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. And as those words ended, Jesus is betrayed by Judas. 
he is arrested, tried, and crucified. And so today we're going to talk about the main theme of this section, which we're talking about being biblical unity. Now, I know at a time like this, in a season like this in life, there have been several messages preached on unity, and you may have heard one. You may have heard them as you flip through the different uh, internet pages, the web pages and church sites, that, that during this time people are preaching a consistent message. But I want you to trek with me because we're going to see in the text points of application or categories of application you may not have considered. So we're going to talk about what biblical unity is not and what biblical unity is. Here's what we see. We see that biblical unity, I want to give you the roadmap, biblical unity is not uniformity, nor is it conflict-free, but it is spiritual warfare, it is political, and it is our witness to the world. So with that being said, if there was a point to this message, if you, if you take home anything, I want us to understand that our unity shows the world the power of the gospel, that our unity shows the world the power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It is to show that we are called to be undivided in a divided world. I know that sounds cliche, but that is the charge that Jesus lays out in the text, that we are to be undivided in a divided world. However, what happens when the church, the body of Christ, people who claim to follow him, is divided? What happens when we're divided? What does that division say about us? And more importantly, what does it say about the Savior we proclaim? See, Jesus knew that unity was important. It was so important that he prayed for it. That'll preach in itself. If it's important, we should be praying for it. But Jesus' prayer also reveals, and look, as we look deeper, it, it, it reveals his, his heart and desire for his church to live out the great commandment to live out the Great Commission, and to see his glory revealed through his church. And so as we've laid the outline, I want us to dive in now to what biblical unity is not. Biblical unity is not, first, uniformity. You see, we, we do not lose our identity and culture to be a part of the body. Matter of fact, we live it out in light of the good news of Jesus. Well, how do we know that? In Revelation 7, verse 9 and 10, and I'm not going to read the entire passage, but it says, and, and it's oddly enough, John, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, after this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Every nation, tribe, people, and language, nationality, family connections, people groups, language, those are elements of culture. We do not lose our identity even before the Lamb. In other words, when we look at this idea of uniformity, in other words, biblical unity is not assimilation. As a matter of fact, the body is to be unified in our gifts, the different things we bring, and we bring it for the glory of God and the good of the church, but also the good of our cities. And this is why the church is described as a body. Now, for those of you that know me, either here or online, know I'm a football guy. 
I played football from the time I was 9 to 22 all the way to college. I was a college football coach. I've worked in every level of football, even had an opportunity to do a, an internship uh, as a coach at an at a NFL training camp, summer workouts. And, and, and it's funny because you can think about all these different levels, but there's a common thread in all of them. You see, the interesting thing about football is that football, the beauty of football is the diversity within the team. And it's not just limited to football. We, we have athletes. we got basketball players at our church. we got athletes. There's a team sports. But, but it's something about football that's different because you got a lot of moving parts. You have 11 players on offense. You have 11 players on defense. you got 11 players on special teams. That's 22 players, 11 on each team on the field. That is organized chaos. It also means that in, the, in a game, one team has 11 players on the field of different body types. Sizes, speeds, personalities, and responsibilities. And while everyone may not know what everybody's doing, they know that their part, as diverse as it may be, is for the whole. Everybody has a role, and everybody's role is important. And here's the crazy thing. Everyone doesn't look the same, but they're all on the same team. The problem is, though, that we see is that in our discourse, in our conversations, whether it be in person or online, is that if you're not in our camp, if you're not in our tribe, if you don't think the way we think, if you don't say things the way we say it, if you don't worship the type of songs that we do it, you are not one of us. And I think about my own life because my own life is just walking diversity. It's crazy when I say it like that. You look at me, I'm a black man who grew up all over the country. I was an Army brat. And then as a football coach, and people could never figure out where I was from. I've lived in Charleston for 13 years. It is the place I've lived longer than anywhere else in my life. That's how many times I moved. I'm in my fourth decade, just to kind of give you a, an idea of how old I am. But if I give it away that when I open my mouth, the first question somebody asks is, where are you from? Because you're not from around here. You see, I have a little bit of D.C., the DMV, D.C., Maryland, Virginia in me. I have a little Texas in me. I have a little St. Louis in me. I have a little Alabama in me. And now I got a whole lot of South Carolina in me. I am a blend of cultures. And the reality is, though, is that I don't fit in any one of them. But yet I can walk in them. I don't assimilate well. Yet I can live in the unity of calling them home. I am an outsider everywhere I go. Even when I try, like it does not work. Like even if I try to blend and fit in, which I do, it's like me trying to fit in a large shirt or a medium shirt. There's going to be a whole lot of stomach busting out. You don't want to see that. I don't have a six pack. I wear a 2XL. So you can just do the math. But there's a beauty that I have found out at this stage of my life. There's a beauty in the diversity that comes with when all of our gifts and our cultures are blended together in unity, not uniformity. You see, that's why I'm church planting, why we're planting the Bridge Church out of Radiant Church, because Radiant has a heart of planting intentionally multi-ethnic churches where we can show the beauty in unity without uniformity. And that is our heart as well, which is why we're planning. Because what happens in so many places is that there are a lot of churches that are diverse, but it's one culture. 
somebody loses their culture in the larger culture. And in the text, we see that that is not the case. We see that unity does not mean uniformity. Biblical unity does not mean uniformity, but it also is not conflict-free. Sometimes we think the absence of conflict is the presence of unity, but that is not necessarily the case. See, there are some things within the faith that we need to fight and contend for. Matthew 10 attests to this. But there are some elements of the Christian faith that are, that are non-negotiables, and we have to wrestle with them. We have to interact with them and with each other. Acts 15 is a picture within the text showing how the, how the early church worked through those issues. And we see it throughout church history through the various creeds. But the problem is, is that many times we turn preferences into convictions. And we end up dying on hills that Jesus did not intend for us to die on. I don't like how that way group preach. They play contemporary music. I want my hymns. They preach topical sermons. I want expositional sermons. Yeah, different things. And while I have my preferences, and I got strong preferences just like everybody else, but we end up dying on hills that Jesus did not intend for us to die on. And then we hear things like this, and forgive me if I go on a little rant here. Many times we hear in today's context that, that this economic policy or this economic philosophy or this political philosophy or this social theory is a threat to the gospel. And I have to ask this question, is our gospel that weak? Is the good news of Jesus that weak? Is it that anemic? That an economic philosophy, that a social theory is a threat to the gospel? Is it that weak? Because that is not the gospel. That is not the good news of Jesus that I proclaim, nor does it reflect the Lord that I serve and worship. Truly, the gospel that I proclaim is one that has conquered death on the cross and has an empty tomb. It has overcome centuries upon centuries of persecution by the hands of governments all over the world. It is the gospel that has overcome bombings. It has overcome lynchings. It has overcome murders and a church Bible study. So how dare do we raise dog whistles when we have brothers who, and sisters who have been kidnapped, imprisoned, and murdered for proclaiming Jesus? And in those places, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is not being hindered. It is being spread. We are dying on hills that Jesus didn't intend for us to die on. So what does it mean for us then as we deal with disagreements that deal with preferences that we call convictions? Well, it's simple. In essentials, we have unity. In non-essentials, we have liberty. And in all things, we have charity. You see, the problem here is, in this idea, in this picture of conflict and, and, and dealing with these different ideologies as we search for biblical unity, is that we ultimately have a, a partly a discipleship problem. But because we have a discipleship problem, ultimately we have a worship problem. 
See, we're all being worshipped or taught by something or someone. But the question is, what are we or who are we being discipled by? Are we being discipled by CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, you name it? Or are we being discipled by the God and Lord revealed in Scripture? See, the impact of our discipleship is directly connected to our worship, and our worship points to our deepest affections and loyalties. When Jesus prayed for unity, he is pointing to a glory that is connected to the unity of who he is in, in, in the Godhead. But understand this, a conflict is necessary so that we can work through our lives as disciples of Jesus. Understand that. But, but that. but that unity that is, that is born through conflict points to something greater. Verses 20 and 21, John 17, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. So Jesus' heart for his followers is through to have the same unity that is reflected in the Trinity. If you are a Christian and you cannot look at other brothers and sisters of the faith, brothers and sisters that have a, a different political, uh, they're from different political parties, if you cannot look at them without charity, you are part of the problem. If Jesus can call a tax collector, Matthew, a representative of the oppressive government of, of Rome. If he can call Matthew, and he can call Simon a zealot, a freedom fighter against Rome, if he can call the two of them to walk together as they follow Jesus, then who are we to disregard our brothers and sisters? I tell you who we are. If we're like that, we are pawns of Satan. You see, Satan wants division. Satan wants a church divided. His job in John 10, 10 says to steal, to kill, and destroy. And as the father of lies, we do his work when we engage in dividing the church. So I want us to understand something. Biblical unity, though, is not about compromising the truth. There will be confrontation. But at the same time as Christians, we are not to abandon charity. We are to assume the best in one another as brothers and sisters. But the problem is many times I see how we call each other out. We want to argue and debate on social media in uncharitable ways, in ways that are outside the order of Scripture, like by going to them first. How many of you have seen someone post something online, you got their phone number, and instead of picking up the phone, sending a text message or a call, you want to tag back and blast on the private, on the private page, on the personal page? Or you had an opportunity to talk to them in person, but instead you go on social media, put it on blast. Let me tell you something, that is cowardly and it's sinful. And the sad part is that people do it under the guise of contending for the gospel. But I want us to understand something, okay? So just as a recap and reminder, biblical unity is not uniformity, nor is it conflict-free. 
So what is it then? The first thing is, is it is spiritual warfare. Biblical unity is spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6, 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil and spiritual forces in the heavens. We talked about earlier, if we're talking about being pawns of Satan and if we're engaging in division, understand there is someone who wants to see the church divided. We are in a spiritual fight. But the beautiful thing is that John points to us in John 17 that Jesus models how to fight by prayer. Paul says it further down in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. So before you beef with someone on social media, what happens if you just started praying for them? And what I mean by praying for them, I'm talking about praying for their good. Praying for a way to, to, to witness, to show the beauty and unity even in conflict. See, there's one thing I've learned about locker rooms. I've been around a lot of locker rooms in my time, and I've seen some really, really good locker rooms, and I've seen some really, really bad locker rooms. And what I've learned is that a divided team is a defeated team. A divided team is a defeated team, but watch this, a divided church is a weak church. Notice I did not say defeated because we are sons and daughters of God in Christ. Jesus already won. John 16, he has already overcome the world. So we're not defeated, we're actually fighting from a position of victory, not for victory. Because Jesus won it on the cross and the resurrection. But... We will not live in the full power of this victory if we're living in division. Mark 3, 24 and 25, a kingdom divided against itself will not stand. A house divided against itself will not stand. We are given instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. This is a spiritual fight, but it is also political. So biblical unity is, is, is spiritual warfare, but it is also political. And this is what I mean by political. Now, I'm not talking about political parties. I'm talking about something deeper than that. I'm talking about something more than our political ideology and affiliations. It's actually connected to worship. It's about how we order our lives in worship based on our identity. And our identity in Christ has given us a task and a responsibility that is based upon a unity that is anchored in Jesus. What does that mean? We are Christ's ambassadors, and we are given his ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.20, this is like, my, like one of my mission verses. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf. We plead. Be reconciled to God. In other words, our kingdom identity shapes our lives with Jesus as Lord. And we are his ambassadors. We are his representatives. 
And as such, we are called to carry out and live our lives and our roles as ambassadors for Christ, living for God's agenda, living for the kingdom of God in this world. We represent a kingdom, and therefore that means we serve a king. And John 17 shows in this prayer a sense of urgency of unity because we represent him who is king. That should impact how, and it should inform how we treat both believers and unbelievers. The question is, if we represent a kingdom and we represent a king, do we represent our king well? It is a tragedy when we find ourselves in this life more unified by our political ideology than our gospel identity. But when we live in biblical unity, we live out our political mission as ambassadors of Christ, proclaiming the kingdom of God and making a real-life impact in this world, proclaiming and living out what it means to do justice, love mercy, and walking humbly with our God. Let me just say it like this. Some of the conversations we're having, some of the conversations we're having on social media is because the church has neglected its role. If the church took the forefront in racial unity, there would not be a need for Black Lives Matter. If the church took this lead for the role, we wouldn't have an immigration crisis. If the church led in its role, critical race theory would not mean anything. But these are the things that people are arguing about and divided about. And we're saying that these things are a threat to the gospel. And I would say, I would say that there's power in the blood. The empty tomb. If hell could not defeat the, great, the, the cross, who are we? It is political because we represent a king. And I know I wasn't going to say, be specific and lay these things down, but the reality is, is that, that if we understood and did our role, we wouldn't have some of the conversations we're having. Who are we? Who are we to say some of the things that we're saying to one another because we disagree on these things? And we put each other on blast, and it's, it's venom. It's venomous. I've seen brothers and sisters eviscerated on social media, and the world sees it. Who are we? How dare we? Are we connected by the blood of Jesus in the name of Jesus? Then we should start acting like it. So, biblical unity is... It is spiritual warfare. It is political, but most importantly and lastly, it is our witness to the world. The end and the goal of biblical unity is revealed in John 17, verse 21 and 23. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. And in 23, I am in them and you are in me, 
so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. If you were to take these two passages together, it would say that the world may believe and know that you have sent me, that they may believe and know that you have sent me. That is what Jesus is praying, that our witness to the world is based upon our unity with each other. John 13, 35 says it like this. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Man, this thing ain't rocket science. This thing is not hard. I know I'm going from Pastor Rashawn to Coach Frost. This ain't rocket science. That if we love each other well, guess what? The world will see that we are Jesus' disciples. This ain't difficult. But if you don't realize that we represent a king, and if you don't realize we're in a spiritual warfare, we will not do this well. They're all connected. So going back to this idea of what we talk about discipleship, I'm almost laying the plane, family. When we're discipled by the world, when we're discipled by the world, we will suffer what we consider to be, or I consider to be a spiritual autoimmune disease. In other words, the body will attack itself on the inside, and, and as a result of poor health, we will damage our witness to the world. And here's the thing. Because of disunity and because of church hurt, many people have abandoned Christ and his bride. Our poor witness has caused people to walk away from the faith or reject the faith. Our love for one another is important because it helps people to believe and know that Jesus was sent to take on the sins and the brokenness of humanity in this life and that we can be in reconciliation with him. This is important. About a month or so ago, Pastor Philip got an email. We were, part, we were serving in a part of the same ministry, One Charleston, and there's a transition. And so he got the email, and it was sent to him, and he sent it to me, and I read it. It, 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 it did something to me. It was from a person, not in Charleston, South Carolina. In Mich it was a person from Michigan. And they sent an email, and, and, and the, the part of the email that gripped my soul was that this person said that they, because of how they saw the, how the church treated one another and a lot of these issues, it caused her to walk away from the church. And so the thing is, is I'm going to be very honest with you, I think about that person's name right now as I'm reading this passage and talking about this point. That this is not an abstract concept, there are names attached to this. There are souls attached to this. There are bodies attached to this. Our unity is an apologetic to the world that Jesus is Lord. So what does that mean for us? I think for both of us that are believers and unbelievers, there's something we can grasp from this here. If we are believers in Christ, we have to be reminded that life is more than just our personal relationship with Jesus. Yes, that's important, 
but we go from sinner to saint, and we, we are brought into a family. And I know it sounds really cliche about the statement, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. But if we're truly God's family on mission, we got the wristbands right here. I wear this thing. I got every color. I think there's like four or five different colors. I wear one with every outfit. As a reminder, if we're truly God's family on mission, then we need to love our family well so that those who are outside the family will be drawn by our love. Not just for each other, but ultimately our love to the Lord. In other words, can we love people who are in their sin so well that we point them to the one who loved them out of their sin? Our love is a witness, and we need to evaluate ourselves in that. But if you're an unbeliever here and you're hearing this, first of all, and probably more than anything, I want to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I want to apologize. I'm sorry for the unliving witness or unloving witness of Christians who have turned your heart away from Jesus. I want to acknowledge your pain, and I want you to know that the love of Jesus is greater than the failings of those who call to follow him. And the fact that you're watching this online, the fact that you're here in person reflects that the Lord may be calling you to himself right now. We are an imperfect people who serve a perfect Lord and Savior. At the same time, though, I'm not going to give you an out. You cannot use the church as an excuse not to follow Jesus. He doesn't call you to follow the church. He calls you to follow him. And so as we talk about biblical unity, it is not uniformity. It is not conflict-free. But it is spiritual warfare. It is political. And it is our witness to the world.